So as you all know, uh, as Christians, we've all been tasked with preaching the gospel, spreading the gospel, making disciples. That's the, the Great Commission, right? But something that I've seen come up, and uh, uh, John brought it up at the Bible study, and I've, I've, I've seen it uh, uh, before as well, and I've had this very same questions, is oftentimes we'll go to speak to people, and they'll have questions for us. They, they have some things that they want to know, and, and, and we may not always have the answer. So I think over the next, uh, at least uh, this Sunday and next Sunday, I, I know there's another one I want to do, and maybe a couple others, I want to spend some time about you know, answering those questions that people might have as we begin to preach the gospel to them. In 1 Peter 3.15 it says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, it is our responsibility to be ready to, to, to give a response, to give a reason for the hope that we have inside of us. And as we share the gospel, there's so often that we're going to be met with objections. You know, if there were never any opposition when we were sharing the gospel, it would be a whole lot easier. If there were never, you know, if we just walked up to people, we told them about Jesus, a light bulb went off in their head, and they got saved, and we just moved on to the next one. I mean, it would be easier, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, who, who would think twice about talking to the neighbor next door? Because it was guaranteed. But as we know, it's not a guarantee. As we know, as we, as we speak to people, sometimes it's tough. Many times we're met with genuine inquisition. There's people that aren't trying to be belligerent. They're not trying to be... They have genuine inquisition. They, they want to know what's going on. They have questions for you. And we need to be prepared to give them a response. And sometimes there's people that have hostile opposition. They want to tell you how you got it all wrong. And they, they want to ask you these questions and push back against you. And how could you believe that? And it doesn't matter if it's genuine inquisition or if it's hostile opposition. The Bible says we need to be ready to make a defense. We need to be better prepared to make a case for the hope that we have inside of us. So as we get started today, have you ever been told that our belief in Jesus Christ is the only way is a little bit narrow? Have you ever felt that pushback when they, when they go, how can you believe that Jesus is the only way? How can you be so close-minded? They say, how can you be so bigoted? How can you be so mean and disrespectful to all these other religions out there? How can, I mean, that is just something else for you to think that way. Anybody ever been met with, with that kind of response? You know, I was listening to R.C. Sprawl speak um, about a week and a half ago, and he was relating a story of, the, of one of his most embarrassing moments when he was in college. And it's actually why I decided to speak on this today. It's what sparked that in, inside of me. But he says when he was in college, he was in, in one of his uh, classes, and the professor had him stand up. She had a question for him. And I don't recall uh, why she singled out him or any of these reasons, but the question she asked, because she knew that he was a Christian, was, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to be right with God? And he said, you know, I was young in my faith, and I knew I was at a, a turning point right there. I had to make a decision. I knew what would happen if I said that he was. I knew what she would think. I knew what all my classmates would think. So I knew what would happen if I said that he was, and I knew it would have been much easier for me if I would just say, no, I don't believe that. I believe there's other ways. He says, I had to make a decision. 
So he says, so I did. I made the decision to say, yes, that's, that's what I believe, that Jesus is the only way to become right with God. And as you might imagine, she began to berate him up and down, you know, one side down the other. You know, how could you believe this? How could you be so narrow-minded? How could you serve a God who is so callous and so uncaring that would only give this narrow way to get in? And she just went off on him, embarrassed him in front of the entire class. She just thought it was unbelievable that he would be so narrow-minded to think that way, so closed-minded. You know, some people would make that argument like his teacher. They would argue that God, a God that would offer only one way to salvation or to get into heaven, that's a mean or restrictive God. They would argue that, and, and in some ways you can see the point that they're making. Why, why would it be such a narrow way? Or they would say that a God like that is manipulative or uncaring. Because after all, a caring God would just let everybody into heaven, right? If God really cared about people, if He really loved people, He would just let everybody in. There's also an attitude in this world that if you have faith in anything, that should be good enough. As long as it's sincere faith. If you, you, know, if you believe with all your heart that Buddha is right, if you believe with all your heart that Muhammad is right, that Joseph Smith is right, all these other religions out here, if you believe with all your heart, a sincere faith, that's good enough as well. And it's true, sincere faith is a very good thing. But the problem with a sincere faith is that it's, an impos- it's possible to have a sincere faith that's just flat out wrong. When you guys came in this morning, did any of you think twice about sitting down in that chair? Did anybody think twice? They didn't think twice. Nobody. We never do. We've been sitting in chairs our whole life. We have complete and absolute faith that the chair we're going to sit on is going to hold our butt up. Now, what if this morning, though, while you guys were out, I went and, and in one of these chairs in here, I, I hacked the legs. So they were just held on by a tiny thread of metal with the hacksaw. You would have walked in with the same sincere faith that you've always had every Sunday to sit in that chair. But when you sat down, your butt would have hit the floor. Was your faith sincere? Yes. Was it placed wrongly? Yes. You can have sincere faith, and it's not going to hold you off the floor. You know, there's many other religious faiths out there. But Christianity has one major difference. Buddha didn't die for you. Joseph Smith didn't die for you. Muhammad didn't die for you. Only one man gave his life. And that was Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. One man gave his life. And faith in Him alone will secure your right standing with God. Faith in no one else will do that. But even still, as a person that, that thinks, this would still be an outrageous claim for us to make, that there was only one way into heaven if it was a claim that we were making ourselves. But the truth is, we didn't make this claim. When you're telling people this, you need to understand that this isn't your bright idea. You're not making this claim. You're not the one that's saying it's true. We just agree with what the Scripture says. And the Scripture says Jesus is the only way. And we need to understand and let others that would question us that it is not our claim, but this is claimed by God Himself. God is the one who set the standard. 
And the rest of the New Testament is in agreement with this. The entire Bible is in agreement that Jesus is the only way. I can tell you that if we were the ones to make this claim, if we were the ones to say, yes, Jesus is the only way based on our own personal religious preference, then yeah, we'd be wrong. And I can understand how people would argue that this would be a narrow view, but the truth is we didn't make this claim. This is a claim that God has made. Amen? John 14, 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How is it that in every other area in our life we're okay with absolutes? In all other areas of our life in this world, in the physical world, we're perfectly okay with absolutes. But in the spiritual world, all of a sudden when there's an absolute truth, we all want to get our hair in a tangle. We want to get all worried. Oh, no, you can't say that. You can't say he's the only way. There's, that can't be truth. Everybody has their own truth. Let me ask you this. What's two plus two? Four. If I ask you again, what will two plus two be? Four. Two plus two is always four. Always. In our world, that's an absolute truth. Two plus two is always four. Never changes. It's a physical fact. If I throw an an apple into the air and accepting anything else acting on it, what's going to happen? It's going to fall to the ground. If I throw an apple into the air 10 minutes later, accepting nothing acts upon it from outside sources, what's going to happen? It's going to fall to the ground. Gravity is a physical law. It's an absolute truth. Nobody can escape gravity on this earth. If I take a flashlight and shine it into a dark space, what's going to happen? It's going to be illuminated. It'll all, whenever you turn on a light, it'll always illuminate the area. That's just, that's an absolute in our world. That's an absolute truth. So the, my question is, if we're so okay with all these absolute truths in our world, how can, we be see, how can we be so argumentative against spiritual truths? If there are physical truths, then there are spiritual truths. And the thing about an absolute truth is that it doesn't matter what our opinions are. It doesn't matter what our feelings are. It's not going to change them. If I really thought to myself, you know what's really unfair? That every time you add a two and a two together, it always equals four. What if this two wanted to be something else? What if it wanted to, do, what if it wanted to act like a three? How come two plus two can't equal five? I can tell you right now that if you make that argument with your math teacher, you're going to fail. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. Two plus two is always going to equal four. You know what? I have to be honest with you, too. I actually find it a little bit unfair about how gravity always affects my body equally. I would be perfectly okay with some days, the days that I weigh myself, gravity, just take a little break. I I would find that a little bit fair. But the truth is it doesn't matter how I feel about gravity. That's not going to change. Gravity is an absolute truth. Gravity happens. And the same is true for this spiritual truth right here. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This is an absolute truth. It's not my truth. It's God's truth. And that's the thing about truth is it always is. There's no way around it. 
It doesn't matter if other people don't feel like it's fair. It doesn't matter if, if people are upset that, that it's just not fair. God would only allow one way in. The fact is, it's just how it is. It's the spiritual truth. And Jesus is truth. The scripture also declares that every single one of God's promises are encompassed in Jesus. Salvation and every other promise of God is encompassed in Jesus. This is a truth as well. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why through Him we utter our, main, our, utter our amen in God for His glory. Every one of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Because He is the truth. He is the way. He alone is the way. Everything that God wanted to accomplish in us and bless us with is accomplished in Jesus. And whether or not somebody would want to argue the validity of this statement with us, we must make it clear that when we speak to people that we didn't just make this up. This isn't just our good idea. You know, when I go out and tell people that Jesus is the only way to salvation, it's not because I took the time to research every other religion out there. I didn't research them all and weigh the pros and cons. And you know what? I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with this Christianity. It seems like the best choice, most pros, less cons. That's not, that's not the way we did it. That's not why Jesus is the only way. That's not why this is true. I didn't take a poll and ask all of my friends and family of all the religions out here, which do you think is the most true? And I, I, we all agreed together that Christianity was it, so that's why we're telling you this. That's not why we're telling people that. We didn't decide that Christianity is the most attractive religion out there. Therefore, it must be the only way. But Jesus was the one to make this claim. This is Jesus speaking. You can tell because it says, Jesus said. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. This is Emmanuel, God with us. God in the flesh said that Jesus is the only way. Now that being said, as we go through this entire thing, as we begin to teach and begin to learn why Jesus is the only way, um, we need to recognize that this is not in order for us to just point at people and tell them how stupid they are for not getting it. You know, we don't need to tell them that their, their views are dumb. This is the truth. Just deal with it. I mean, no, that's, that's not going to be very effective. You know, the first scripture I read this morning was 1 Peter, Peter 3.15, and it says that we need to make our defense gently and with respect. We will not be effective if we tell them that they're stupid and they're, they're going to hell because it's our way or the highway. But we can share why we believe these things without pushing them away. And remember that we are to be preaching good news. Amen? In Acts 4, 10-12, it says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and by Him, this man is standing before you well. This is right after uh, God healed the, the lame be- beggar through Peter. He said, Gold or silver I have none, but what I have I'll give you. Rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ. And it says, Let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by what which... 
<laughs> by which we must be saved. First Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. You know, this Jesus saying that he was the way, the truth, and the life, this wasn't just a one-off statement of Jesus, and ever, nobody ever paid it any, any more mind after that you'll see that the New Testament is in agreement with what Jesus said, which makes sense since how it's the inspired Word of God. And God's the one that said it in the first place. But it's taught by the writers of the New Testament as well. In Acts 4, like I said, this is Peter speaking right after he healed the lame, the lame beggar. And then Peter, and he teaches that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other, man, no other name. There's nobody else that came and gave their life for us. Paul then teaches Timothy the same thing. He said, Timothy, there's one God and there's only one mediator between God and man and the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the only one that's going to mediate between you and God and make you in right standing with God. There's nobody else that can do that. And not only that, not only were they teaching that, but we'll see that, that 2 Timothy 2.2 2, which is right before this, this is what Paul says to Timothy, in which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This was something that was to be taught to faithful men who would teach others also. This was, this was so important to the Christian faith because, and it was told to be taught to all who would hear it because there is only one way to God and that is through Jesus. The one consistent message, no matter how it's said, whether Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Peter says, no, no name under heaven given among men. And Paul said that there's only one mediator. No matter how it's said, there's one consistent message. And that's that Jesus is the only way. Faith in Him and Him alone is essential for our salvation and placing our faith in any other method will have devastating consequences to the individual. City officials in Aliso Viejo, California, were so concerned with the potentially dangerous properties of a chemical combination that they considered banning foam cups when they learned that the chemical was used in their production. The city had a reverse course a short time later when they learned that they had fallen victim to an Internet hoax. One of the city's paralegal researchers found an official-looking website with a warning about the compound. The website warned that dihydrogen monoxide was an odorless, tasteless chemical that could be deadly if accidentally inhaled. And the city council quickly scheduled a vote to ban the use of foam containers at city-sponsored events because they were made with a substance that could threaten human health and safety. The measure was pulled from the agenda when someone realized to their chagrin that dihydrogen monoxide, H2O for short, is a scientific term for water. And the city manager, David Norman, said, it's embarrassing. We had a paralegal who did bad research. See, getting your facts wrong can be embarrassing, just like in this case. But it can also be more than embarrassing. In other words, it does matter what you believe if you take the wrong path. Even if you believe it is right, you'll still end up in the wrong destination. That's why it's important that we get our facts right. This is the only way. Jesus is the only way. And like we talked about, it's a truth. Whether they want to believe it or not, it is what it is. I remember... uh, uh, what was the guy that died and went to heaven? I'm blanking on his name. Dean Braxton. Dean Braxton. 
He says, people will tell him they don't believe him. He says, that's okay, you'll see. It doesn't matter if we believe it or not. It's the truth. You know, and personally, I can almost understand the opposition, people being so upset with Jesus being the only way if it was somehow exclusive to others. You know, if we were to hear that only Jewish men in their 30s could place their faith in Christ, that would be a little upsetting. That would eliminate a lot of people having the same opportunity. If we were told that only those with an income greater of $60,000 a year had the opportunity to place their faith in Christ, I can understand why so many people would be upset that this is the only way because that is narrow. I mean, that's, there's a lot of people that aren't going to make it. If we were told that only certain privileged people could place their faith in Jesus, I could understand the cries of unfairness. You know, I once heard an illustration of, of privilege being described by a teacher that I thought was an excellent illustration of how privilege works. You know, in the United States, we talk about everybody has the same privilege, the same opportunities, rather, to do certain things. And even if if the opportunity to place your faith in Jesus was like this, I would understand. But the illustration he used was that he had everybody in his classroom take out a piece of paper and ball it up into a little ball. And you guys are aware our classrooms are set up. It's row after row of desks. And he took a trash basket and stuck it in the front wall and said, everybody is going to have the same opportunity today. You guys are going to take your ball of paper and you're going to throw it. And if you make it into this trash can, If you make it, automatic A. If you miss it, automatic F. So everybody took their turn and they they threw their paper at the wastebasket. And as you might expect, everybody in the front row, almost everybody in the front row made it. And almost everybody in the back row missed it. And right afterwards, they begin to complain and say, this isn't fair. He says, what do you mean? You all had the same opportunity. But they see they didn't all have the same privilege. Some people, if you were in the front row, you had an easier time of making it. But if you were in the back row, it was obviously a much more difficult throw, even though you had the same opportunity. And he said, that's how privilege works in America. So the interesting thing is that the people up front didn't even realize the disparity in privilege because they had a little bit either. They didn't even notice it. And that's true. And I was thinking, even if... Christianity were like this, where everybody had the same opportunity, but it was just a little bit harder for other people based on where they came from, that I could still understand people being so upset about this being the only way. But the truth is that Christianity is nothing like that. Placing your faith in Jesus is nothing even like that. Everybody has the same opportunity, and there's no barrier to entry. Peter said this earlier in Acts 2.21. says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who does it. There's no barrier to entry. It doesn't matter your background, your, your current beliefs. It doesn't matter. As long as you place your faith in Jesus, you can be saved. Everybody has the opportunity. In Matthew 7, 13-14, it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Anybody else, like me, read this and didn't really read it as gate, but read it as narrow path? 
That's always a thought that's been in my head. It says if you enter by the narrow gate. I always understood it as if you enter by the narrow gate and now you're on this narrow path and should you stumble a little bit, lose your balance, you're going to you know, fall headlong into hell. It's actually not what it reads, although for some reason that's how I always read it. See, the word being used here is gate. It's the, the way to enter. And what it's referring to is not how we walk, but how we enter in. And Jesus is that narrow gate. Jesus is the way, the only way to be in right standing with God. That's the the narrow gate that leads in, but it's the wide gate. All those other options that are are the ones that lead to destruction. And the the wide gate is all those other ways that people want to claim to come into right standing with God. If I work hard enough, if I give enough money, if I do this, if I do that. And there are many other religions that make the same claim that you can become right with God, with ultimately it all boils down to in every other religion, if you do good enough, if you live a certain way, then you can become right with God. You look in the New Testament, uh, particularly in the book of Acts, you'll, you'll see the New Testament referred, or the Christianity referred to as the way. Jesus says, I am the way. But there are many other religions out there that argue that, hey, no, we're, we're another way. But the truth is, there is no other way. There's the narrow gate, and everything else is the wide gate. And this wide gate is the one that leads to destruction. Because it's easy. There's so many people going through it because it advertises that it's easier. It advertises that, yeah, everybody can come in this way. Everybody will be happy. Everybody can be saved. But the problem is is that everyone's being lied to about the destination. It's not the same destination. The wide gate leads to destruction. And just because everyone else is doing it, just because there's more people, it doesn't make it the right way. Jesus Christ is the narrow gate. And the great thing about the narrow gate, the, the method of entry is narrow. There's only one door, and that's through Jesus. But the path on the other side isn't narrow. It may be hard sometimes, but our path and our options in serving God are limitless. You know, a lot of people think that if they begin to serve God, then they just, they're never going to have any more fun, and their life's going to be miserable. But the truth is, as Christians... Our options to live our lives have not been stunted. It's true that we abstain from sin. But the only reason that's an issue for non-Christians is because the belief is that sin is fun. Sin is, you know, I should be able to free to do whatever I want. But the reason we abstain from sin is not because God wants to ruin our fun, but because what the world sees as fun is actually destroying them. So like I said, I just want to point out that the the gate is narrow not because of its requirement of entry. Or is narrow because of its requirement of entry, not the path that we walk on afterwards. Alright, so if we've looked at this and we've realized that the way to God is only through Jesus, the way to become right with God is only through Jesus, Why did God choose such a narrow path? Doesn't he want everybody to get in? That's the question we ask. Doesn't he want everybody to get in? Why not make it super easy? 
Why not just snap his fingers and call it a day? Why would God make it so narrow and so seemingly difficult? In Isaiah 5.16 it says, But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy and a righteousness. We have to understand that God is a holy and a righteous God. And the truth is, he does want everybody to get in. In John 6.40 it says, For this is the will of my Father, this is Jesus speaking, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. The will of the Father is that everyone would look upon the Son and believe in him. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4 says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Matter of fact, the reason that God is taking so long to finish the work, the reason why Jesus hasn't come back is because he's being patient with us. He wants everybody to have an opportunity. In 2 Peter 3.9 it says, The Lord does not show to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish. God wants everybody to come in. He has welcomed every way, and He's made provision for everybody to come in. However, God is a holy God. God is righteous, and God is just. See, God is holy, and it's more than just sinlessness, and it's more than just spiritual purity, and it's actually difficult for us to understand because this is a key part of God's character that we don't naturally embody. It's difficult for us to explain because we can't relate on our own terms. We are made in God's image, and it's, we're able to express other characteristics of God, mercy, forgiveness, love. But the only way we can be holy it's through Jesus. It's something that's imbued to us. It's something that's given to us. It's not something that we are. It's not a characteristic that we have from God by birth. In the Old Testament, exposure to God's holiness resulted in death. That's actually why when Christ was crucified, the veil was torn. Because He could make us holy and we could enter in to the Holy of Holies and have fellowship with God. But if we didn't have that, if Jesus wouldn't have died for us, if Jesus wasn't the only way, we could never be made holy and we could never be in the presence of God. God is not being exclusive. He wants you to live forever and He's provided a way for you. God is also righteous and just. To be righteous means that it is his character to do right. He can't just wave sin away. He has to do right by it. And we all know what justice is, right? We've all seen the, the rapist get, get let off because uh, a technicality. And we all understand that that's not justice. They didn't get what they deserve. But God is a just God. And he has to, to remain just. Sin has to get what it's deserved. And as we know that the, the wages of sin is what? Death. Sin had to be dealt with. Because God is just, He must behave in a just manner. And to forget sin would not be just. I've always stated that the beauty of Christ is that God did not alter His character to ensure that we could be in fellowship with Him. 
He didn't alter his character by turning a blind eye, but instead he extracted the punishment and justice on his son in our place. God's a just God, and sin has to be dealt with. He can't just turn a blind eye. He would be acting out of character. And for God to act out of character would be to mean that he is not God. The reason it has to be Jesus is because there's no other option. Living good enough, following some other person or some other man's teaching, none of those things will meet the requirements of justice that have been brought about by sin. That's why there has to be a way. And that's why Jesus is the only way because he's the only one that can deal with the problem. John and uh, Paul described it as the difference between light and darkness. In 1 John 1, 5-6, it says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And in 2 Corinthians six fourteen, it says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light? with darkness. See here, John and Paul used the, the perfect example, the perfect illustration of light and darkness to describe what we just looked at right here, what we just talked about. God is just and justice has to be done. When you accept Jesus Christ into your life, you are made into light and all darkness is removed from you. You are made brand new. You're actually, the scripture says you were called out of darkness into his light. In 1 Peter 2.9, it says, But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Paul told Timothy that we're children of light. In 1 Thessalonians 5.5, 5, it says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of night or of the darkness. No other religion makes that claim that their God pulls you out of darkness into light. Every other religion claims that it relies on your working to become right. You doing good enough. And anybody with any sense can tell you that you can't be good enough. Even our relationship with others is affected by this reality. Paul says that what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness is what fellowship has light with darkness. This doesn't mean that we don't go out into the world and share our faith. Actually, Paul had to deal with this very thing. He said, wait a minute, I didn't tell you not to associate the world at all. You just can't be friends with it. We have to be very careful with how we interact with those who who are unbelievers. Not that we can't love them, not that we can't spend time with them, but they shouldn't be our best friends. Because what fellowship has light with darkness? How do you relate with somebody who's living still in darkness? One of the the hardest things that I went through when I became a Christian is that I lost a lot of friends. Not because they were mad at me or I was mad at them, but because we just didn't see eye to eye anymore on things. I didn't want to do the things that they were doing, and they were still deceived that the things that they were doing were awesome, so they didn't want to do the things that I was doing. 
What fellowship can light have with dark? Truth is, is that we serve different masters. And it's impossible to be in right standing if you're in darkness. If you've not been born again, if you've not been made brand new, then you cannot stand in the presence of God. If you turn on a light switch in a room, when you get home at night, you're out for the evening, you come home and you turn on the light switch, all darkness in the proximity of your light is destroyed. There's none of it. Has anybody ever seen a, a random cloud of darkness hovering around a light? It doesn't happen. It's, it's, it just can't happen. Darkness cannot be in the presence of light unless it's shielded by something else. As long as there is light, darkness can exist. And the same is true for us in the presence of God. We must be light because if we're just darkness and we're destroyed in God's presence. We can't Darkness cannot survive in the presence of God. Only light. So we've took a look at the, the reality, the truth, that Jesus is the only way. And we've took a look at why this has to be the case. Because that's what people are going to ask. Why is that true? Why can there be no other way? And then finally, I want to look at what it ultimately boils down to because we're dealing with God. I'll be honest with you. I thank God that He has opened with us in His Word. That He has made His mysteries known to us. Because the truth is, He didn't have to. His response could have been just like the one I give my kids probably more often than I should. Because I said. Right? Isaiah 55, 6-9 says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, even then God was calling out to his people saying, Come back to me. Turn away from what you're doing. Come back home and I will abundantly pardon you. There was always a requirement to turn to God. And just for us too, there's a requirement to turn back to God in His Son, Jesus. And He will abundantly pardon us. But even then I wonder if they took offense, if they argued with God about how He was telling them to come home. What if we don't want to do these things, God? Isn't there some other way? See, today the, the same argument is made. God, why must it be that way? Why can't there be other options? And today the answer is the same. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And even as the heavens are higher than the earth, my thoughts and ways are higher than your thoughts and ways. We don't get to tell God how to run things. You may not believe this, but he's probably got a little more information and wisdom than you do in all these areas. Even though we all like to argue with God. You know, we can easily be snobby and say, I can't believe you're arguing with God. He says it's Jesus, it's Jesus. It's easy to get snobby like that. But the truth is, even as Christians, we argue with God probably more often than we'd like to admit. 
There was once a small boy who was writing a letter to God about the Christmas presents that he badly wanted. And he wrote, I have been good for six months now. And then after a moment, he crossed that out. I have been good for three months. Then he thought a moment, and he crossed it out. And he says, I have been good for two weeks. And he crossed it out. He walked over to the little nativity scene, and he picked up Mary. And he walked back to his pen, and he said, God, if you ever want to see your mother again. (laughs) I think I just broke my (laughs) stone. The truth is, we're always arguing with God, and we're making ultimatums with God about how we want things to be done. Even as Christians, we do it. So we, we have to be careful with how we deal with others because they're not acting any different than us. And the truth is that whether you're a Christian or not, no matter how much you argue with God, no matter how you try to tell God how it should be done, He's always going to win those arguments. And the truth is, His way is the right way, whether you see so or not, because His thoughts are higher than yours. His ways are higher than yours. So if God decides a thing, whether it be salvation through Jesus, or the timing of a healing, or any other thing that God decides, who are we to argue with God? Who are we to say, no God, that's not how you should do it? We're going to end in the book of Job, because Job's one of those men who tried to tell God how he would do it. And this is the response of God after Job tried to tell God how he should do it. <clears throat> In Job 38, 1-7, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkness counseled by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you and you make it known to me. Could you imagine God saying that to you? He says, I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And this goes on for the entire chapter. You see, Job thought he would tell God how it should be because he didn't like how things were going. The devil was taking a a poke at Job and making his life miserable and, and Job thought he would tell God how it is. And this is what God had to say back. I think that when we question God, somehow we've become oblivious to how arrogant that really is. I can tell you with certainty that we are creatures that are not omnipresent, we're not omniscient, and we're not omnipotent. We don't have all the information, and we don't have the capacity to understand what God is thinking. If God says that Jesus is the only way, then we should heed this as truth and take advantage of the gift that has been offered to us. And that is right standing with God. So I'm going to finish this, this message off with the rest of the story of R.C. Sprawl. After class, the teacher called him up and he said, you know what, it was one of the most incredible acts of mercy and kindness anybody has expressed to me. And she pulled him aside and she said, you know what, I want to apologize to you. When I called you up there, I knew what you would say. 
I knew what was going to happen, yet I did it anyway. And I just want to apologize to you that I pulled you up there, that I embarrassed you in front of everybody. But that being said, she says, I still want to know how you can be so narrow-minded to think that Jesus is the only way. I don't understand how you can serve a God who would behave in such a manner. And he says, he says he knew he had to have an answer for her because people are going to ask. So he said, this is what I told her. I said, let's just take a moment to hypothesize. Suppose for a moment, he says, now I recognize as he's telling the stories, I recognize that this is what I believe, and I, I don't believe I have to suppose it's truth. He says, but I understand that you don't believe what I'm saying. So let's just suppose for a moment together that the Bible is true. And let's suppose that God created man in his own image, and he placed him in a garden. And he said to the man, you can eat of any fruit, of anything in this garden except for one tree. He created man. He gave him life. He gave him everything that he could ever need except for don't eat from this one tree. And then what's man do? Man does the one thing, the only thing that God said he could not. And he's removed from the garden. And as time goes by, man is turned from God and is taken captivity into Egypt. And God heard the cry of his people and he came down and he sent a man and Moses to free them from slavery. God frees them from slavery and removes them from the captives. And almost immediately, they turn their back on God again and begin to worship a golden calf. But God still sends them into the promised land after they turn back to Him. And time after time, the people turn their back on God. No matter what He does for them, no matter how much He provides for them, how much He takes care of them, the miracles that He does, they turn their back on God. So God sends prophets to tell them to turn back to me and I'll pardon you. And they kill the prophets. So so now suppose God sends His one and only Son, His only begotten Son, to earth. And they killed His Son too. And in the death of His Son, He made provision for all of mankind to be made right with Him. And he said, so you tell me this, supposing that's all, all that's true, that when you die and you stand before God, you're going to tell him that he hasn't done enough? Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.